Today we are beginning a series on Paul's letter to the Colossians that will take us through about the middle of November, and uh, I've entitled that series, Living Thankfully in the Supremacy of Christ, and uh, this is a good letter for learning more about Jesus Christ, who he is, and how important it is for us to be in Christ, and it's also a letter that emphasizes giving thanks uh, over and over again. So uh, let us look uh, to this passage. We'll use this as a unison reading. You may find your bulletin insert, Colossians 1, 1 through 14. Let us read the word of God together. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, To God's holy people in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ, grace and peace to you from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all God's people the faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven and about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel that has come to you. In the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf, and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please Him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to His glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience, and giving joyful thanks to the Father." who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. In his book, Talking to My Father, Ray Stedman tells the story of a missionary couple who were returning to the United States after a lifetime of service in Africa. And this took place in the days of of Teddy Roosevelt when he was president of the United States. And it just so happened that Roosevelt was on the same ship. He had been in Africa on one of his big game hunts and was returning to the United States. And, of course, he being the celebrity he was, you know, dignitaries appeared and bands played and all the people on the ship wanted to get just a glimpse 
of the famous president. And then when the ship arrived in America, it was more of the same. Politicians came out from the woodwork. Bands played. There were people everywhere, newspapers, all the rest. And they were all paying attention to the president. And not a single soul came. Not a single soul paid attention to this couple who had given their whole lives to the kingdom of God. And it sort of depressed the husband of this couple. And his wife could tell that he was bothered. And she said, you know, maybe you need to talk to God about it. And so he spent some time in prayer. And she could tell that his countenance had changed. You feel better now, don't you? And he said, yes, I began to pray and tell God how bitter I was that the president should receive this wonderful welcome and that we should receive nothing. But when I finished praying, it was as if the Lord said in a quiet voice, but you're not home yet. You know, sometimes people ask, does prayer change things or does prayer change people? You ever think about that? Does prayer change things or does prayer change people? I think that that the experience of Scripture and the experience of life would confirm that the answer to that question is both. I would hope that each person here today has seen answered prayer in a way that your circumstances have changed, but also that you've seen prayers answered in a way that changed you in the process. That's the mystery of the power of prayer. And Paul knows all about this mystery. He not only teaches it, but he practices it. And as ancient letters were inclined to do, Paul also begins his letters with a prayer of thanksgiving. The ancients usually thank the gods. Well, Paul takes that practice in his letters and, and greatly enlarges upon it and uses it as a time to not only give thanks for what's going on in the life of the people of, of that particular congregation, but to also touch on some of the themes and doctrines which he will speak to in the body of the letter. But also at times, like here in Colossians, he also includes a prayer of intercession for those to whom he writes. And this is a good example for you and me. This responsibility of intercessory prayer is very important. For all of us, as as God's people, this is a privilege and a responsibility that we have for one another to pray on behalf of each other. And in a moment, we'll take a look at what Paul specifically prays for the Colossians. But first, let's notice why he gives thanks. In this opening section in verses 3 through 8, we can see that Paul mentions the so-called big three that we see often in the New Testament, especially in his letters. And by the big three, I'm referring to faith, hope, love. 
You know, like we find at the end of 1 Corinthians 13, faith, hope, love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. In that context, those three are gifts, and we can see much the same in our passage today, verses 3 and following. We always thank God when we pray for you since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. All of these gifts are at work in their lives because of the gospel, the good news of the grace of Jesus Christ. And as this first section makes clear, perhaps you notice, Paul did not plant this church. Epaphras did, and he informs Paul of what is going on in this congregation. Paul writes that Epaphras has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And there in verse 9, so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. Since Paul hasn't ever been there, we don't think, he doesn't really know these people. He might know one or two people in that congregation, but he doesn't really know them, and yet he prays for them. And I just wonder what our prayer lives are like. Do we readily pray for the members of other congregations? Surely we pray for our own members, but do we readily pray for those in the community, needs that we hear about? I know that our email prayer chain that goes out, which Lois Kirkpatrick so graciously coordinates for us, has needs of this church as well as needs of other congregations and and needs in the community. Our staff prayer list does much the same. We have a lot of prayer requests on there about members in this church, but also other people of other congregations and various needs in the community. And I I can't speak for all the prayer teams that work in the life of this church, but the the one or two that I attend uh, certainly do that as well. Not just our own members, but prayer requests all over. This is an important thing for us as the body of Christ. You know, as Presbyterians, many times we talk about how we're a connected church, but, but that's true. For the entire church, for the body of Christ, we are connected in Jesus Christ. One faith, one Lord, one baptism. And we have this privilege to pray for each other. This is the example we see. And notice we see that Epaphras must have made known some of these requests to Paul. And so it's our responsibility to make sure that the requests get out there. Lots of times I hear after the fact that some of you have been in the hospital and uh, that does not make me happy. Because how can I pray for you if I don't even know you're in the hospital in the first place? So we make these requests known and then we pray about them. Now, look at what Paul specifically prays in the second section of this opening. That you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. What does it mean to walk, to live in such a way that it's worthy 
of the Lord. And what's this business about pleasing Him? I thought our chief end was to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Well, certainly that's true. We can see the seed of that catechism answer in Ephesians 1.12 where we read, We have been destined and appointed to live for the praise of His glory. Or as Paul puts it near the end of 1 Corinthians 10, Whatever you do, do it for the glory of God. Or remember what Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. Our lives are given so that we might bring glory to Him. But as we bring glory to God, we also please Him. And this business of pleasing God is a goal that we can see in Scripture over and over again. I mean, I think about how Jesus lived. He lived in a way so as to please his Father who was in heaven. Otherwise, he wouldn't have made that prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. Father, take this cup from me, but not my will. Yours be done. God said of Jesus, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. You may recall Hebrews 11 teaches us that without faith it's impossible to do what? To please God. In 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul writes, We ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you learn from us how you ought to live and to please God, just as you are doing, you do so more and more. Paul makes much the same prayer here in Colossians. And then he gives us four descriptions of the type of living that pleases God. And we can easily see the first in the middle of verse 10 where he writes, bearing fruit in every good work. What does it mean to bear fruit? Well, notice how he qualifies it. In every good work. If you're good with children and you spend time in the nursery or you spend time teaching our little ones or our young people, you're bearing fruit in good works. When you prepare a meal for someone who's been ill and you take that food by their home and you brighten their day, you are bearing good fruit through that good work. The officers of this church, those who serve as elders, Deacons and women's ministries board members, you know, those are not easy jobs because there's a lot of ministry taking place around here. And many of these officers are chairs of committees and boards and and there's goal setting and implementation and programs and services and all sorts of things taking place because they're willing to give of their time and their effort and their service. They're willing to sit in meeting after meeting after meeting, which, by the way, is not one of my favorite things to do. And yet, to bear fruit in good works, we have to do some of those kinds of things from time to time. And that's pleasing to God. It's pleasing to God because just like with Jesus, it's not their will, but His That is being done. And that's just on the individual level. That's not even talking about the corporate level. 
and all of the things that we could talk about that we as a congregation are doing outreach in the greater community at large. Now, in Ephesians 2, Paul makes it clear that we are not saved by our works. That's not why we do good works, so that we somehow make ourselves uh, more palatable to God. That's not what it's about. Paul says it's by grace, through faith, that you've been saved, not because of works, lest anyone should boast. But right there in Ephesians 2, Paul also says, however, we are created for good works. And in Acts 26, when he's speaking before King Agrippa, he urges people to repent, to turn to God, and to do deeds worthy of their repentance. If God has changed your heart by the power of the Holy Spirit, you want to do works that bring Him glory. You want to accomplish things that are pleasing to Him. And that's a testimony to your own spiritual health, it seems to me. No good works, poor spiritual health. Conversely, deeds worthy of repentance typically, not always, typically reflect a vibrant spiritual health. Paul doesn't praise the Colossians here simply because they've learned the truth from Epaphras. I mean, he gives thanks for that, but he's praising them because this truth that they have learned has become a part of who they are and has produced concrete results. But notice he combines this bearing fruit with another phrase, increasing in the knowledge of God. John Calvin wrote that faith rests not on ignorance, but on knowledge. Knowledge not only of God, but knowledge also of the divine will. And your growth and my growth in the knowledge of God and of His will is important to Paul for at least two reasons. One is the knowledge of God is essential for us to call, for, for us to live as we're called to live. Knowledge of God helps us to bear fruit. I think this is why Paul ties these two together. Think about Jesus' words in Luke 6 where he says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Knowledge and action go hand in hand. And so that in some ways, holiness is the road to knowledge. Holiness is the path to knowledge, as Spurgeon would put it. The second reason growth in the knowledge of God and His will is so important is because this kind of knowledge enables us to, to guard ourselves from false teaching, which is one of the problems in the church at Colossae. It helps us to understand when someone is twisting the truth instead of giving the real truth. Most every spiritual crisis derives from a failure to know God or to follow His will. In fact, Romans 1 teaches that when we suppress the truth, 
that we can know about God because of all of this wonderful general revelation that he's given to us, we're given over to depraved minds where we begin to do things that we should not do. The opposite effect of suppressing the truth of God is that we seek after God. We seek to know him. We seek to know his will. And, and scripture teaches that when we have this kind of seeking going on, we will be known. We will be found. When we know God and his will, then we can begin to see God's purposes at work in the circumstances of our lives and the things that are going on around us. That's why we need to spend time in his word to have the wisdom that we need to have to see God at work around us. Then Paul continues by saying, May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. There's no, no doubt we need God's power at work in our lives. If we didn't, Paul wouldn't have prayed for it. And that's something that you hear emphasized around here a lot. Because I say it over and over again, and I'm not going to stop saying it, that if we want to do what God is calling us to do, we need to pray that His Holy Spirit will give us the power we need to enable us to carry out the calling He's placed upon us as individual Christians and as a church. James says, you have not because you ask not. You know, you and I, we need to get in the, in the practice, the discipline, the habit, day in and day out, asking for God's power. And that power will yield, among other things, endurance and patience with joy. Those two terms, endurance and patience, sort of sit there in that verse like a, a warning to me, or that's the way I read them, uh, what may come to those who seek to accomplish God's will. Satan will attempt to use both circumstances and people to thwart whatever it is that God is calling us to do. And so we'll need his power for endurance in certain circumstances and situations and we'll need his power for patience to deal with these people that are trying to take us off the path God would have us walk. so that we can count it all joy when we meet various trials. For we know that the testing of our faith produces steadfastness, as James uh, tells us. Or if you want to look at it in another way, Hebrews 12, let us run with perseverance the race that is set before us. How can we run that race? Is it on our own power? Is it on our own gifts, our own skills? No. The writer of Hebrews tells us, let us run with perseverance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. We look to him for the power we need. Now that verb that Paul uses there, strengthen, be strengthened with all power, is in the passive voice. 
which means there's nothing we can do. We have to look to God for all that we need. Finally, we see Paul's fourth description of of how to live a life pleasing to God in verse 12 where he says, giving thanks, giving thanks to the Father who's qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of, of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. It's in Psalm 69 that David tells us that he will praise the name of God with a song and will magnify Him with thanksgiving. And he teaches us there that 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 pleases God more than sacrifices. This thanking God. You know, the world doesn't care about being thankful. The world just wants to take whatever they can get. And they don't really show any gratitude. Joseph Stalin considered gratitude a sickness suffered by dogs. But a thankful heart is of primary importance in the Christian life. One of the words we'll see over and over again in this brief letter is thanks or thanksgiving. Uh, Seven times at least, I just counted in a simple count, in a little four-chapter brief letter. It's something, a theme that Paul comes back to over and over again. And I think that should speak to you and me. You know, how thankful are we really? How often do we tell one another we're thankful? I know that I don't tell you enough how thankful I am for you, for who you are and what God's doing in your life and what you're doing in the life of this church. What a privilege it is to to serve in this place. Being thankful is something that Paul is going to say to us over and over again in the next couple of months. And since Paul, in a way, commands giving thanks here, it must be more than a feeling over which we have no control. It doesn't matter whether we feel thankful or not. Giving thanks is something we can decide to do, and so that means it's a spiritual discipline in which we can grow. And then Paul concludes this section by stating three things for which you and I can be eternally grateful. An inheritance in the kingdom of his son, our rescue from the rule of the power of darkness, and the gift of redemption, which is ultimately forgiveness of sins. You see, this good news is why Paul can proclaim what he writes in Romans 8 when he asks, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution, in other words, shall any of these things from the rule of the power of darkness be able to separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ? Famine, naked, peril, 
uh, sword, all of those kinds of things are works of the rule of the power of darkness. But none of them can separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Because of the good news we read right here at the end of this passage, no more are we under the domain of darkness. We've been transferred to the kingdom of God's beloved Son. And that gives us an eternal life with Him forevermore. It's the good news of the gospel. Amen. Amen. Let's pray together.